You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, EVs help fuel inflation. We break down today's CPI report and car prices record high. And we'll bring you the latest in the world of AI. C3 AI shares jump again Tuesday without an obvious driver. Chairman and CEO Tom Siebel joins to discuss what the company's doing to justify the jump in its stock. Plus, we'll speak to the CEO of semiconductor company weathering the chip slump. It's Tom Caulfield. He's from Global Foundries. The CEO joining us with his outlook. All that and so much more coming up, but let's dig into these markets. It was a big macro picture kind of a day. The CPI print coming in hotter than anticipated, 6.4% year on year in terms of inflation. But the Nasdaq pushes on through it, up six tenths of a percent. Is it the comments from certain Fed members like Harco saying maybe we're nearer the end in terms of our inflation fighting tactics? Two-year yield, though, it listens more to the inflation override. They're worried about inflation still remaining hot. Yields, borrowing costs rise almost 10%. 10 basis points on the front end. Looking at the VIX, though, dialing back, maybe that's more about the geopolitics, the fact that maybe those new UFOs or indeed items that were shot out of the sky by the United States aren't Chinese. Maybe that dialed back some anxiety. Flick it on. We're actually seeing a bit of a bounce back in terms of the moon music around crypto. Look at that sudden push higher in terms of Bitcoin. Some of the regulatory risks, maybe we're getting used to the med. Yeah, I'm also looking at inflation, but with an eye also on earnings. And that is a theme that continues to the technology sector. Airbnb breaching 10% gain now in after hours. A strong outlook for the fiscal first quarter that came in above expectation in terms of bookings and sales. We'll continue to track that stock across the hour because the earnings call, of course, will happen. We'll bring you some of the key numbers. Earnings also a key feature of the main session during Tuesday. Palantir was one stock that we're tracking really closely. Really big jump, taking its shares to the highest level since August. You can see that's a 21% game on them saying they recorded their first quarterly profit on a gap basis in the final three months of last year, but forecasting profit for full year 23, which was kind of the key headline. Global Foundries, as you said, Caro, up 8%, big jump, bucking the trend in the chip industry, forecasting strong sales and elevated demand in some pockets for, of end markets. And NVIDIA, interesting to see NVIDIA, it's shares at April highs right now, but this is largely about uh, artificial intelligence, right? There's a lot of momentum around it. 
the work that NVIDIA is doing in the field of AI, a feel-good or a read-through, I suppose, from what's happening in the rest of the sector. But otherwise, a lot of the move is the individual names on the NASDAQ 100, almost conversely to what you'd expect moving higher after that inflation print. And let's get back to the inflation story, because in many ways, Ed, it's your favorite thing, EVs behind some of the push higher. U.S. car prices in particular have had a record high. The average monthly payment for a new car here in the U.S. is now at a record $777, nearly doubling from the late 2019. And, of course, because electric vehicles cost about 25% more than the average car, the shift to plug-ins is about to make that affordability crisis even worse. Let's get to it, Bloomberg's Keith Norton. And Keith, it was a fascinating piece. There's a big take on the Bloomberg Terminal on .com that is so well read about this rising issue of costs of cars. But it's a global issue, isn't it? It really is, Caroline. And it, what it's doing is it's putting the dream of car ownership out of reach for middle-class buyers, which was always part of the, you know, the contract with the middle class. You would you would have a new car in the driveway and own your own home. All of these things are, are becoming out of reach. The average price of a new car is approaching $50,000. That's up 30% from 2019. It was driven by the pandemic and the supply shortages. But you know what? The automakers have discovered they can make more money selling fewer cars at higher prices. So they don't want to give it up. Yeah, the mantra, Keith, is lean inventory, fat price tags on those vehicles. The tech angle here is, is the electric vehicle effect, right? And um, some of the most interesting reporting in that piece was the price premium for EVs over combustion engine cars. What did you find? Yeah, you know, add $50,000 is a luxury car price, right? Well, the average price of an electric vehicle is $61,000. And that actually just came down a bit because Tesla did some across-the-board price cuts. Before that, it was approaching $70,000. Well, that's really out of the reach of most people. And so, you know, the EV push, and we're expected to be, you know, at least half EV by the beginning of the next decade is only going to make cars less affordable. Okay, but Keith, a lot of the hand-wringing was about supply chain issues, chip shortages. We know that that sort of swung into reverse now to a certain degree. Is there still a price input issue here? Yeah, you know, the interesting thing, Caroline, is yes, we had the semiconductor shortage that left dealer lots empty, that drove up prices. It's the old law of supply and demand. But the automakers saw that and said, gee, I, I can, you know, have fewer people in the factory. I can have less inventory that I have to pay for. I can have lower marketing costs because I don't have to discount the cars to move the metal. Let's keep this inventory low and these prices high. That's what they'd like to do forevermore, whether there's a supply snag or not. Bloomberg's Keith Norton. Terrific reporting for the Bloomberg Big Take. Thank you so much. I want to stick with this story and bring in Cox Automotive Executive Analyst Michelle Krebs. Michelle, you just take such a deep view of the auto industry. But I go back to that question I asked Keith. What is the impact of electrification here in sort of boosting up the average price of a new car across this nation and beyond? Well, Keith had it right. Uh, the the price of electric vehicles, uh, it, at one point, it was uh, the average price in our calculations was about $66,000. Um, that's more than the household income for most Americans. So um, we are seeing that come down a bit, some of that because of Tesla's moves, but also because we are seeing automakers start to introduce uh, less expensive ones, and we should see more of that.
What is the permanency of this phenomenon? If we're moving towards electric vehicles and it's a slow transition, how long do prices stay elevated? I think for a while. I mean, we don't see them coming back down. And I would quibble with Keith a little bit. Uh, we started seeing this trend long before the chip shortage. We saw the domestic automakers get out of uh, the car business, the traditional cars, and those lower price uh, cars, leaving that to the Asian automakers. And the Asian automakers have not been able to produce them fast enough to to appeal to you know people who are on budgets. So that's not going to change. Uh, and we are moving more towards electric vehicles. I don't know when the price parity gets there with ICE vehicles, but I, I think we're in for some high prices for a while. I just want to bring up what we've been asking our own audience about, Michelle, because I like the fact that you put it into context that 66,000, like it's more than most Americans bring in in terms of their annual income. We asked, you know, what is more worrying for you at the moment in terms of the inflationary pressures? Is it the price of EVs? Well, actually, generally, it's only 13% thinking that. It's more about their groceries. It's more about the price of eggs. And I'm afraid we asked a cheeky one. It's the price of love, of course, today being Valentine's Day. 46% are worried about that. And I'm sure they're meaning the services, the idea of going out. Out, getting restaurant bookings and drinks but to that end is there a clever way that we can finance autos going forward that it isn't quite so expensive on a monthly basis well I think we are going to see some experimentation because this business model just doesn't work for uh, many Americans I, I think last week it was uh, Hyundai announced a subscription service where you pay for your EV they're doing it on two models uh, on a monthly basis we may see that kind of thing. Uh, something has to give if we're going to go towards more EVs. I would I would say that in your survey, if you'd ask, uh, are you more worried about the general price of vehicles, that is what I hear from consumers. And the EV part just layers onto that. I see. So it's sort of, at the moment, EVs are deemed by many a sort of luxury item. Oh, will, absolutely. Will competition change that? Oh, it already has. Uh, you know, uh, Tesla has uh, done some discounting. They did some discounting at the end of this year. They cut prices. We are seeing lower priced models come onto the market. So competition um, will certainly uh, impact pricing. But will it really bring it back down to the level that we're used to? Uh, doubtful. Michelle, we've focused really on the, the consumer in this conversation. I want to focus on the automakers themselves, pure play like Tesla or the transition names like GM and Ford. How do you summarize 2023 when it comes to this transition to electric vehicles? What is it that you hope to see happen in the next 12 months? Well, I don't know if I'd hope to see it happen, but I think what we are going to see is a much more competitive environment. Um, Tesla has dominated the EV market. It still does. It still will. But we are starting to see some automakers make some inroads, making their uh, Tesla's uh, market share go down. So I think uh, what we're watching for is how much inroads do other automakers make with EVs. Always great to catch up with you. Thank you so much. Great expertise from Michelle Krebs, Cox Automotive Executive Analyst. Meanwhile, sticking with autos, and in fact, Ed just name-checked them, Ford. They're actually going to be cutting 3,800 jobs in Europe as the EV shift takes hold. Look, Ford is shifting its model lineup in Europe to battery only by 2035. And has previously said that the reduced time and effort to develop and make electric cars was going to lead to smaller product development teams. So efficiency there, Ed.
yeah, a common story. And sticking with EVs, Tesla, uh, its workers in New York, Caro, are launching a unionization campaign. The employees who label data for Tesla's autopilot technology at the plant in Buffalo, New York, sent an email to Musk today outlining their intent to unionize. Employees say they're seeking better pay and job security alongside a reduction in production pressures that they say has been harmful to their health. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And Ed, we cannot let this day go by without digging into artificial intelligence in some way, shape or form. Yeah, and it's a familiar name that I'm tracking, right? C3AI, another jump of 10% on the shares this Tuesday. No obvious reason, no headlines on the Bloomberg terminal. And then you go to the year-to-date performance. We're up more than 100%, and 108%, including Tuesday's session. But let's, let's sort of zoom out for a moment and, and give some context of what's going on here. This is a company that IPO'd at around $42 a share in December of 2020, all the way on the far right-hand side of that screen. We're at $23 a share right now-ish. Nowhere near its peak immediately following the IPO. So what's driving this company and its valuation? It's all well and good saying we're up 100% year to date, but we're nowhere near that historic high. Well, luckily, Cara, as you know, we've got a conversation coming with exactly the right person, C3AI chairman and CEO, Tom Siebel. So Tom, you've had the preamble. You know, of course, of your stock's performance. Does what C3AI actually does as a business justify the trading we've seen so far in 2023? Well, we uh, C3AI, I think, is the world's leading provider of enterprise um, AI, enterprise application software. And if you think that um, that artificial intelligence is going to is going to influence the enterprise in a big way, then I think this represents a just a staggeringly large uh, addressable market opportunity. Tom, it's interesting you bring that up because we've been speaking to some VCs who all say actually enterprise search is where they see real business model fit at the moment for the likes of ChatGPT. Just talk us through C3's generative AI for enterprise search. You're going to unveil it in March, I believe. What, what will it disrupt? Well, the C3AI platform represents about a billion and a half dollars of software engineering that we apply to manufacturing, aerospace, utilities, oil and gas, what have you. Now, with the combination of enterprise search, natural language processing, generative AI, reinforcement learning, okay, and the C3AI platform allows us to fundamentally change the nature of the human-computer interaction model for these important enterprise applications. So this is a this is a huge development, and it's brought a, you know a lot of attention to AI. Okay, in the last couple of months, as we've seen. Oh boy, hasn't it just? And a lot of that attention has fallen upon initially OpenAI, then it moved to Microsoft that did the deal with them. Then it was, of course, it's what Google or our parent Alphabet has us a bit up its sleeve. But what's so interesting with C3AI is you're kind of integrating all of those AI capabilities. You're using if I'm right, OpenAI, Google, Academia. What do those sorts of deals look like? How do you combine all of the best learnings? We have close technology and market partnerships with Google, with Microsoft, and with AWS. So as they you know, advance these technologies, as they will okay, in the coming years, we're going to be able to immediately take advantage of all the innovations that they provide 
in our underlying core architecture and make those innovations available to our customers in our applications, make our applications much more efficacious, much easier to use. And so this is, this is, a, this is a big development and this could fundamentally change the nature of the human computer interaction model for enterprise applications. This is, a, this is genuinely a big deal. Tom, I asked our audience on Twitter, on LinkedIn, before we came on the show, what they would ask you. And actually, to be fair, they just wanted to know what artificial intelligence competence does C3 have? And to be fair, I think you've answered that. But it raises a good question, right? When you think about year-to-date performance, your stock ticker is AI. And I just wonder what your take is on how much of the trading is just retail investors trying to buy in to find the next big thing in AI without missing the opportunity. Well, honestly, Ed, I don't really track the market that closely. Um, I think that you know we, we, we've seen a market correction since the this huge technology bubble we had that had peaked, I think, about the first quarter of 2021. Um, I think with C3 AI, we've had a you know dramatically uh, undervalued security. I think when this whole thing recovers, C3 AI will be if not the one of the world's leading providers of enterprise AI applications. And, um, you know, I think that presents a, I think we still have an undervalued security and this is going to be a very promising opportunity. Tom, noting that you've got more than $800 million on your balance sheet in terms of cash, will you take advantage in the run-up of the share, of the share price and, and sell any more shares? Um, no, I, I think we're, we're you know, we're... <clears throat> So our focus is on growing the top line rapidly. Our focus is on uh, and running a cash-positive, profitable business, which we expect to be doing next year. Uh, I don't expect our cash balances at this time to go below $700 million in cash. So we're, in, we're very well capitalized. We're in a position to grow the business, advance the technology, okay, and, and, okay, and uh, deliver a cash-positive, profitable business, growing at a, at a very rapid rate. So I think about the time the Fed takes its foot off the brake, I think this company is going to be blowing and going, and uh, we're... we're Mm. Now and then, we're just going to run the business. Will you look to inorganic growth, Tom? Because you're a man who knows M&A. In fact, your last business, of which you were founder, chairman, CEO, was bought by Oracle back in the day. You understand M&A more than most. Will you buy others? And it's, and when, we, when I was CEO of Siebel Systems, I think we bought 20 or 23 companies. I think it. Uh, we're focused, so Caroline, it's a great question. We're focused on growing the business organically. And I think, you know, we invested over a billion and a half dollars in the technology foundation over a decade. Okay, we've done a lot of, uh, of hard work here. And I think this is not going to be, you know, one of these Salesforce type stories or Oracle type stories. We're going to try to grow through acquisition. We're, 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 we believe we have the technology foundation in place. We're going to grow the, or the, the our technology footprint organically. We have 42 turnkey enterprise applications today for utilities, oil and gas, defense, aerospace, manufacturing. You can expect that to grow to hundreds of enterprise applications in the years to come. But, you know, I'm not saying, right. you know, never say never to an acquisition, but that, that, that's not, uh, that's just not in the, in the, in, in, you know, it's not our focus right now. 
Tom, in terms of how you make money from artificial intelligence, you, you've kind of shifted, right, from subscription to consumption. And, and I'm curious about how that's worked out, the timing of it, amid a boom of interest in artificial intelligence. I think the timing was perfect, okay, and, uh, you know, we, we've seen a transition from first perpetual licensing to subscription licensing. Now, it's clear that the licensing standard for the cloud, uh, for cloud computing, is consumption-based pricing. This is the way that Google does it, Microsoft does it, Amazon does it, Snowflake does it. Pretty much, this is the standard. This is the way that companies want to buy. They don't need to make big up front investments, they can pay as they go, and so it's, um, we're finding it's being very, very, very well received by the marketplace, by our partners at Google and Microsoft and Amazon, uh, by our customers and by our prospects. Come back, keep telling us about the deals and about what you're doing to grow the business. C3 AI, Chairman and CEO, Tom Siebel there. We thank him. Now, before we head to break, C3 AI is actually, we understanding, bidding for a contract to revamp the IT systems of the UK's National Health Service, challenging an offer from Peter Thiel's Palantir, according to reporting from The Telegraph. Now, Palantir shares, we've got to get to it, because they're jumping today after projecting its first annual profit in 2023. So quite the move that we've seen. We saw them after hours, of course, yesterday, Ed, and you recently spoke to the CEO of that business, too. Yeah, they've really shifted from this kind of reliance on governments to commercial customers, and clearly the market over a 24-hour basis believing in that story, so we'll continue to track that one. Now, coming up, we're going to bring you the latest news in the world of VC-backed startups, with some still managing to raise new funds in spite of this global downturn. That's all next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Time now for the VC Roundup, starting with Indian fintech startup Insurance Deco, which has just raised $150 million from a group of investors led by Goldman Sachs Asset Management. It's the largest ever Series A for an Indian insurance tech company. It will use the new capital to scale up, expand into new markets, and grow the company's business with small and medium enterprises. Here's another fintech startup that's defying the market downturn, Singapore's Aspire, which has just raised $100 million in a round that more than doubled its valuation. In a deal led by Lightspeed and Sequoia Capital Southeast Asia, Aspire is used by businesses for a range of financial services, including making international payments and automating invoices. And finally, Capsule, the online prescription delivery service backed by Thrive Capital, is in talks to raise $100 million in a new funding round led by Cox Enterprises. That's according to the information citing sources who say the firm's looking to raise a $500 million valuation down from its previous valuation of $1.2 billion. Cara? Yeah, we're going to see a few down rounds in this environment, I feel. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Let's get to it. Let's get to chips right now. One that's actually based right here in New York, the state. Global foundries, Ed, surging after earnings today. Now, the stock at one point, in fact, seeing its biggest move since all the way back to November, taking shares to their highest level since we've seen of March 2022. Once again, earnings beating expectations. He did it in November. He delivered and actually said he's going to post some sort of growth looking positive for this year. And as they wrap up the year, it looks as though they're still feeling positive. Positive, still able to book in those orders. How, when the rest of the industry seems to be going from boom to bust? Global Foundry CEO Tom Caulfield is here to answer the question. So, Tom, we ask you that question. When we're seeing a lot of the other chip makers, although with different model, business models to yours, seeing the oversupply, the ricochet coming back from the lack of supply, why are you able to take on these headwinds? Well, I think, the first of all, let me thank our team. Tom Caulfield doesn't deliver these results. 14,000 people worldwide deliver these results. I think we position ourselves because we play in so many diverse end markets that where there's strength, we can flex some of our capacity to that strength. Where there's weakness, we don't play in some of those markets. Like personal compute is probably the smallest market for us or smallest portion of our revenue. And that's been disproportionately heard in this particular uh, downturn that we're going through. Okay, so perhaps less of an exposure to a consumer. What about customers, their ability to commit right now in advance to use your factories? That's kind of the interesting business model that you have, and many times you're getting them to help put money down into the investment in future fabs as well. I'm interested, Tom, as to how they're able to tackle these sorts of macro headwinds too. Look, when, when our customers talk about adding capacity, these are, these are four or five year long projections they're making. And it's not the temporal you know, things that we're doing right now. And so when customers look through this cycle and look for what their growth potential is of their business, I don't think there's a single executive or CEO in the semiconductor industry that doesn't believe that in the next decade, this industry is going to double. They start to look through this macroeconomic uh, environment we're in to think about longer term and the kinds of contracts that we're signing with our customers 
in the last quarter, a much longer range than the near term. The contracts. Now, in the near term. Oh, sorry. Carry on. Yeah. They, these, these, I call them long-term agreements. The, now, the, the same long-term agreements that we signed two years ago are also creating a framework for us to work in partnership with our customers. It's single source business. How do we both make the best of the situation? How do we work together to get through the, this, this downturn? At the same time, honoring the, the economics of these contracts. Let's talk about non-cancellation type of agreements that you've wanted. You want sort of guaranteeing your revenue streams. How willing and able are your customers to do that at the moment? It's not a question of willing or not willing. We sit and work with them and there's a lot of different levers we can use to find a common ground. Uh, we can we could trade in duration for these contracts, so add extra years. We could remix their business. There may be segments where there's more demand than 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 the segment they first signed up to. Uh, they could pay some modest underutilization fees for the temporal moment. The key is how do we as partners position ourselves to get through this inventory correction, but more importantly, position our relationship for growth when this industry does come back. Tom, I appreciate that response. Is it difficult right now, right now, to get customers to sign new agreements, those that are coming to an end, those that you want to onboard as new customers that you haven't done business with previously? How much nervousness is there in that fresh field of business? So one, we reported we've signed some in the fourth quarter and, and very recently we signed one with uh, General Motors. So it shows that this thing hasn't stopped. I think the only hesitation for customers right now for longer range uh, agreements is what the near term looks like and what, what they want to get now over the next year versus longer term. And so for putting a little bit of a pause in signing up for long term, believing they have a little bit more time to really get a better sense of the growth of capacity they'd like to put on for us is really the period we're going through right now. There's so much emphasis and interest on the onshoring of supply chains in this country, on what the Biden administration has done uh, in terms of dollar figures to support your industry. But do you actually feel any of that right now to your top or bottom line? Uh, Right now, no, but let me put this in perspective. Uh, The chips and science bill solved one half of the equation, which was putting capacity on shore. The other half is making sure there's demand to use that capacity. And I think that's the story that still needs to be written. Now, having said that, there is an appetite and a will and a desire to bring more of semiconductor manufacturing to GF's global footprint, including the U.S. Typically, what that entails is not taking an existing design and requalifying it. It's thinking about your next generation designs, your next products, designing those into the supply chain of your future. And we're beginning to see some of that come our way. So let's talk about designing into the future with some of your partners. I think in particular the GM arrangement that I think you announced just earlier this week. What's new in terms of that, Tom? What foresight can you give us as to the way in which GM's thinking about its own supply chain? At the highest level, it's giving GM the capacity they need on the technology platform that's durable for them, where they want it at the best economics. And essentially, what this means to all auto, the, the entire auto industry, is the type of technology they use in semiconductor as they think ahead of their semiconductor content and that growth rate in cars. They don't see enough capacity on the, on the, the platforms of technology in semiconductor that they're going to need. And they need to today begin to engage with semiconductor manufacturers to create that capacity. 
by working directly with the manufacturers like GF, they get to secure that supply again on the technology platforms they want and get it the best economics because they'll share in that investment to create that capacity. And then that investment doesn't get marked up through the rest of the supply chain when it comes back to them in a finished uh, component or electronic uh, piece of equipment. Tom, respectfully, Global Foundries is a, is a much smaller uh, operation than, say, TSMC or Samsung. That's just the reality, right? But what are your advantages? What is it that you can offer the, the chip makers and those direct customers like a GM that those giants cannot? Well, I think there's a couple of things. First, we start with our, our geographic footprint. We're in Singapore, U.S., and uh, Germany. And in many cases, we can qualify a single product continents away to give that supply chain flexibility. The second thing is some of those competitors you mentioned, the vast majority of their R&D and uh, capacity investments is on what I call single digit nanometer, where it's really for high speed digital compute, and compute intensive applications. We service a different part of the market, what we call feature rich semiconductors, where we add you know, embedded memory features for secure the security in credit cards and, and secure transactions. We add high voltage for display drivers. And so we, where we play, right. we play in adding features to existing platforms that create differentiation that our customers need for their products. Tom, have Tesla or any of the tech giants working on their own chip designs engaged with you about future opportunities? I don't speak uh, about uh, customer engagements on a one-to-one unless we've done something together in the press. But given how important semiconductors uh, are to the world economy and how semiconductor manufacturing in itself is so important, you can imagine that we speak to a lot of uh, direct end users about our capacity expansion plans. I can imagine, and I'll ask you again next time. Global Foundry CEO Tom Caulfield, thank you so much for giving Cara and I some time on the show. Very welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, coming up, we look at the stocks hedge funds loved and hated last quarter as the 13F filings roll out. Why many are feeling the burn. More on that next, Caro. Yeah, and meanwhile, let's get to some of the stocks that are being loved after hours, Airbnb being one of them. Earnings, they beat. They're seeing strength in terms of resilience, people still wanting to travel into this new quarter versus previous quarter last year was a record, and they obviously delivered a first full year of profit. Notable that Brian Chesky, the CEO, is talking about price transparency. It's had a neutral impact on bookings, he says, and Stevenson saying they're seeing slightly longer lead times for bookings. Currently up 9.5%. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com.
Grammarly. Easier said, done. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Shopify was among the first technology giants to slash its workforce during last year's market route. Now, some investors say its stock is poised to outperform peers over the course of 2023 as those layoffs translate to lower costs, narrower losses, and of course, better cash flow. Investors will see the results when Shopify reports earnings tomorrow. Caro. Meanwhile, well, we're going to stick with stocks being rewarded and punished in equal tune. We're going to turn to 13F filings, basically funds what they're doing with them. Are they buying or selling technology, consumer, discretionary, communication sectors? They're actually selling all of them, seems like. Anything else that happened in the fourth quarter? We've got just the person to speak to about it. Just before big tech, of course, had a rebound, some people are being a bit of a pain trade. Shanali Basak is here to walk us through what the big hedge funds were doing, what their big buys were. So if they're selling out of tech and communications, what are they buying? Yeah, it's interesting. Remember, even though they're selling out of tech, there are still certain traders that are actively buying into or shorting. We'll talk about that in a second, big tech names. And the reason they're selling so much is if you look in aggregate, they still hold more tech than anything else. So the way they're positioned in the, the, this year, there is room to sell and they're still benefiting from that gain in the NASDAQ we've seen. Now, listen, let's talk about the names themselves because you see big divergences between the big hedge funds and the rest of the investment industry. Because remember, with these filings, although they're on a lag, you hear from family offices and pension mm-hmm. funds as well. Tesla is one of the biggest position changes in the positive direction. And oh. that's even as you see some big names like Glenn Catcher's Light Street get out of Tesla in the t- same time frame. You see the likes of BlackRock and other bigger index funds get into Tesla in that same time frame. So one of the biggest buys is Tesla, but you also see among the biggest buys, Caroline, it's kind of boring. You're seeing people get into tax-exempt bond ETFs run by Vanguard, uh, FTSE developed. You know, it, it is a lot of ETFs that show you how funds are trying to position. Mm. We were talking yeah. not just about the hedge funds, but the family office. I want to point out, for example, you have Stanley Druckenmiller's Duquesne getting out of Amazon as quickly as it did. You have Soros, fund management, betting against Silvergate. Dig in there, because Silvergate's obviously had a terrible turn of it of late. Yes. Was that short working at that point? When did he put it on? It's hard to know exactly when. The well, value, she manages the money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Don Fitzpatrick is the CEO to, CIO to what you're alluding to. The market value of the position is $1.74 million. The one thing that was not disclosed about that weight 
wager was, you know, what does it really do on the downside? You know, how low does Silvergate really go? Is he still in the position now? A lot of the news about Silvergate, including Bloomberg's own reporting about the inquiries it's getting from the Department of Justice, came after the quarter. So the question is, you know, what do these options, these are put options, really look like in terms of what Soros has been buying? Uh, and again, 1.74 million, that's chump change yes. for him. But again, what the payoff will be is what we're interested in. Yeah. Can we talk about some of the Tiger Cubs here as well? It's worth noting that the Tiger Globals... Oh, you go for it. You're on a roll, Shinali. <laughs> Tiger Cubs, let's, let's go. Do I like 13Fs or do I like 13Fs? No, the reason it matters is because it's a positioning question, right, Ed? We look at what's happening over at Tiger Global, and really what you're seeing is a, still a lot of um, selling rather than buying. And I think that's an important dynamic to keep a hold of after some of these funds were so heavily burned after the whipsawing of last year. These are big tech-heavy funds. Right. We know their private investments have held up better for them. Do their private marks start to take bigger markdowns now, especially right. as a lot of those companies don't make it into public markets? The markets haven't opened yet for IPOs. I, I know you like 13F season. I like 13F season too because I see a lot of names that I cover, right? Rivian's a great example. The big names reducing or exiting their positions in Rivian, which was the worst or second worst performer on the NASDAQ 100 last year. That's one example. What other big tech names are we kind of waiting for, that we had some clues that there might be some movement in ownership? Yeah, I think what's interesting, if you take a look at it, you're seeing a big divergence on let's say fintech, because you saw some buying into MasterCard, but you saw on the other end of things, you saw selling of PayPal. PayPal was a big seller when it came to the hedge fund industry in particular, and of course, when you look at it this year, there's a lot of changes at the top. They have an activist investor as well, and so what is it going to take to bring kind of the fast money back into a stock like that? Uh, you see MasterCard, like I said, being bought in the same time frame. There were some tech buys. You saw Alphabet being largely uh, bought in the time frame that we're talking about here. You're still seeing a buying of more finance names in tech than anything else. But I think if you think about tech, Ed, you're watching people get into the card companies despite some of the um, issues we've seen in the broader economic environment more than they're buying. For example, you know, let's just take the note right. from Sandra Druckenmiller, this, the selling of Amazon so quickly. Bloomberg, Shinali, Basics, terrific. Just dozens of headlines each hour hitting when the 13Fs hit. Uh, so keeping track is quite a skill. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Speaking of headlines on the Bloomberg terminal, some news crossing and breaking. Ross Gerber, the Tesla shareholder, has notified Tesla in a letter to its general counsel that he is seeking a board seat. I'm just going to reiterate that Ross Gerber has notified Tesla formally in a letter to its general counsel that he's seeking a board seat. You'll remember, Caroline, of course you're Remember, he joined us on Twitter Spaces Friday, yeah. where he made public his intention to be a friendly activist and pursue that board seat. Well, this is it concretely. He's taken that step. Yeah, left us rather shell-shocked with sort of a moment's silence as we took it in on his birthday, came on to announce that that's the sort of step he's going to be taking. And he's not your usual activist investor. He hasn't built up an enormous stake in this Correct. company, but he's got the backing of some really significant shareholders, hasn't he? Yeah, so, so look, he's got 440,000 shares at Gerber Kawasaki, his wealth manager. That is 0.01% uh, of the company. But he says that he's got the backing of the biggest individual uh, shareholder who has 1%. He also name drops some big institutionals that he's friendly with and cooperative with. So we'll see if it has any traction. As always, we've reached out to Tesla. We've reached out to Elon Musk. We've reached out to the IR team. No responses yet.
And notably, that's actually what he wants to stop happening. He wants them to reach out more. He wants more public relations, more media-friendly discussion coming from Tesla to really talk about what they're doing. Fascinating and great that you got those headlines in the middle of the show. Ed. So look, I ride a bike around New York City. I'm always trying to dodge the traffic, but perhaps there's a slightly more glamorous way of doing it than me on my city bike, because you may soon have another option to reach a destination in style with a, in the sky, in fact, electric air taxi. Let's bring in Bloomberg's Skylar Woodhouse for more. So talk to us about what this was breaking new uncharted territory on here in New York. Yeah, so Blade is already chartering flights. You can get on a helicopter, you can charter a whole plane, you can, they're, out, they're also in the health organ transportation business. But today, they're one step closer to launching their electric aircraft. So basically, uh, we all know about the push behind EVs, so this will just soon be an electric aircraft that someone can ride in. Okay, so I, the blades take off very near where I commute up and down. Why would this be different? Why is this so much better? We can see beautiful pictures of this, but it looks kind of like a helicopter. What's well, different? Yeah, so what about this is like we hear the helicopters and they're quite noisy, just the regular ones that are flying around New York City or really anywhere. But this one in particular, it's very quiet. And today when I was at the Westchester Airport, when it flew right by, you really couldn't hear much. So the way that they're designing this plane is all about also reducing the noise. Mm -hmm. So that way, as these become more normalized, you know, just kind of within the space, they won't be as noisy to try and bring those noise complaints down. Skylar Woodhouse, your next dispatch for Bloomberg Technology is to report to us live from the air <laughs> inside one of these, okay? You know, challenge accepted. Yes. For me, what's interesting here is the reality of this. You know, so many players trying to literally, pardon the pun, get these off the ground. How real is this business? When do we see it kind of widespread above Manhattan skylines? Yeah, so it's going to take some time. And, you know, when you look at beta, like, you know, they're in the process right now with the FAA trying to get all the, the all of these approvals. It's not just going to appear tomorrow. So it's going to take a couple of years. I think right now Beta is saying they're hoping to get some sort of FAA approval by 2024 and Blade has been a little has been saying that 2026 their customers could perhaps start to um, start riding on these types of aircrafts. And, and on that note, customer, how much is this going to cost me? If I'm visiting Caro over in New York, <laughs> I'm just looking at the screen, am I going to be able to afford this? You know, I think you might, Ed. I mean, it's going to be a little bit cheaper. Um, you know, price point, I, you know, taking one of these private helicopters is not necessarily an easy expense, but given the electric factor, it will reduce costs a little bit. So we'll have to see what the price point um, becomes when they roll out. Fascinating. Blade, Beta, getting together. We'll see if that regulatory approval comes by 2024. Great to have you. Hope you enjoyed Westchester. <laughs> Skylar Woodhouse there. I mean, what, Ed, I mean, let's get back to something that I think was a first, maybe for Bloomberg in general, was some breaking news on one of our spaces, our right. Twitter spaces that we do. And we are now getting the reality, the fact that Ross Gerber, a relatively small shareholder in Tesla, but a very discursive one, a very out there talking about Tesla, big bull, is looking for a board seat. 
Yeah, it's, it's hard to know whether this is going to work or not. Him being a friendly activist, he has a tiny position. He's sort of canvassing support of the bigger retail investors. But we had him on to talk about the activism behind Dis Disney, right? Yeah. And the, the penny kind of dropped in the moment. He was like, you know what? I'm just going to tell you guys I'm pursuing a board seat. But he's basically making some pretty practical recommendations. Like, what is the succession plan? Is Elon Musk spending enough time on Tesla or too much time at other companies? Um, I've been speaking to other investors. They have very mixed opinions about this, Caroline. Interesting. I wonder what some of the reticence might be in terms of just his point being corporate governance. Many would say when you're at a founder-led business, it's sometimes a little bit more lacking than most. And well, we know that on the board of Tesla are a number of family members and the like. Yeah, it ranges from those that say there's nothing wrong with Elon Musk yeah. to those that say Ross is inconsistent in his views. We'll, we'll track the story. I'm sure this is just the start. Great bit of breaking while you're also doing the day job of presenting a television show. Yeah. He's also sending headlines. That does it from this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Tomorrow, Akamai CEO Tom Layton is going to be joining us. Or again, it's about earnings, Ed. Yeah, and don't forget, recap the whole show on the podcast. iHeart, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.